From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Got the whole crew in here. We've had the whole crew for most of our time. Once we hit COVID, we can dial in and do this via Zoom. We are all on Zoom this afternoon. Eric Bradlow is here. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Those guys are all formerly statisticians. I'm not. I use a lot of statistics. This is Cade Massey. We've been doing the show together for eight and a half years. We're going to do it at least one more week. Gentlemen, Tuesday afternoon, show will go up Wednesday. It'll be rebroadcast on SiriusXM a few times over the week. It'll podcast will get up on Wednesday. We've got a few things going on in the sports world. I think most notably, I'd say the World Cup kicked off Sunday. And we're on day three now. We're on day three. We're on day three. Um, it, I don't know. It feels kind of quiet for World Cup, I'd say. Well, wow, Saudi Arabia like, oh. beat Argentina today. That's not so quiet. No, That's I, not quiet I, at all. The yeah. supposed biggest upset in World Cup history, that match went off something like plus 1,800 for Saudi Arabia, which I think translates into 95% likelihood of not winning that match. And something Argentina hadn't lost a World Cup match that they were leading since 1958. They also were on a 36 match yeah. winning streak, by the How way. How about that? How about that? Did y'all see some of this game? Because it was in the pre dawn. No. It was in the pre dawn. And man, they they could they had like three, literally three goals in the first half callback because of offsides. I mean, literally three breakaway goals that got that got, and some of them were really barely close. They did. Yeah, I've got AI doing that for us now. That's like an automated thing that they've got. Actually, uh, I was reading about how they're training machine learners to kind of like to really quickly do the video kind of comparison. You know, okay. so have they got it down right? <laughs> I mean, I think the ones that, the ones that you they've sort of like actually played in front of me look like they did get it right. I mean, I feel like offsides is kind of a weird thing anyway. But I, I think I, the other thing that was weird about the uh, Saudi Arabia game. I don't know if this is factually true, but this is what I heard on a bunch of broadcasts. I think they only had two shots in the first half and they scored on both. Yeah. And they were, yeah, neither one of them were easy chances. They were both extraordinary kicks. So all I'm commenting on is, you know, this is one of those examples where, you know, soccer has some inherent randomness in it, in the sense of everyone would admit Argentina absolutely dominated the play. But Saudi Arabia put two in the net. On very difficult shots. And, yeah. and you know, that's what that's what can happen. Matt even put up on our screen. They ended the game. They only had three shots total in the entire game. Well, so, it's, so I mean, we, that's we, remarkable. Absolutely. And it's amazing how well it connects to our conversation last weekend or last week with Ryan O'Hanlon, the author that, of, of Net Gains. We talked about soccer for an hour, unexpectedly for an hour last week, which was delightful. But we talked about, you know, we're – we're newbies still with with soccer, so we're, we're we're still kind of reinforcing the basics. But this expected goals concept, which is based, you know, you're getting better all the time. It's based on whether the you know how good the chance was. Essentially, the expected goals. So remember, the score was two one Saudi Arabia. The expected goals was two point two three for Argentina and 0.14 for Saudi Arabia. So. This is, uh, we. I started poking around. I asked, we got some help from the internets today. It was good fun. This is like Twitter at its best. I was curious how that spread, that discrepancy between the actual score and the expected difference from expected goals. It looked big to me, right? So what are we talking about? We're talking about a difference of three 
because they, they should like have. They should have won by two and they lost by one. Exactly. And we're not, and we're, we're actually rounding down to get to those numbers. So it's more than three. They should have lost by two and they, I mean, they should have won by two and they lost by one. That's three, a three point difference from expectation. How does that fit in the distribution? So we just asked the internet and Will Fox jumped in here. Thank you, Will. Will's tweeting from at WD Fox three at WD Fox three. He has premier league data. So any points, you know, he says, look, international matches are different from club, but this, May not be a bad place to start. He gives us seven years worth of Premier League data, and he finds that a three-goal discrepancy is in the 96th percentile. So exceedingly unlikely to see this. I would have thought at least the 96, to be honest with you. But I really what's, didn't have what's the do. pool that's just international matches, or is, no? That's Premier League data. Premier League. That was Premier League, and so we don't really know how that compares to international matches. But it gives you yeah. some sense of how unusual, how extreme that outcome mm-hmm. was versus expectations. Well, I mean, just to point out, I mean, they got the, those two goals out of the three shots. They were probably highly unlikely, but they're not, stu- I mean, what were they, one in 20 shots? Uh, well, we know exactly. The expected number of goals was 0.14. So right, the basically three shots. But the, uh, on average, they were around uh, uh, one in 20. But yeah. one of them was a one in 10, and the other two were... were I can't judge. They were five. both pretty extreme. They probably were very extreme. Um, actually, I, just to comment, I mean, there is randomness in soccer, and, but I don't think there's that much because um, you got to take a lot of shots or you have to have a, at least a few number of good shots. And that usually what, what, why the games come out um, where the favorite wins or the, the better favorite wins. Saudi Arabia got basically extremely lucky twice. Um, and that does happen, right? But it's yeah, okay. and I, I mean, I think the tournament is structured such that, I mean, in any one game, it is actually pretty random. Stuff like this can happen. It's just that, you know, Saudi Arabia, I mean, if they keep sco- uh, taking three shots per game, they are not going to run the, t- you oh, know, they're, they're not going to go very far. So, I mean, like, oh. I think on a on a tournament level, somehow we, we keep observing that, like, it's like only the dominant, t- the, the kind of the best teams that win, basically. Um, just game per game, you can't get random stuff. This, but this isn't necessarily. I mean, as fun as it is, I mean, this isn't necessarily even consequent. Like Argentina could easily go on to still win the World Cup. It's not like we're at the knockout stage here, right? So, well, yes, but Saudi Arabia was supposed to be the team that everyone picked on in that division. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. But I mean, you know, I mean, Argentina still controls their destiny. They win out, so to speak, and yes. they're through the well. Next round. The, uh, Shane points out something that's really important. It was fortunate. I believe they're in the same division as Mexico and Poland, right? And that ended up as a tie. Mm-hmm. So that's why they control their own destiny because they beat the two of those teams. They have to get to six points, and therefore they will be in the top two in their particular bracket. So that's that's the key fact. Is that well? I mean, Mexico- even if they uh, even if the Mexico Poland game had. Uh, no, then Saudi Arabia. Team, no, then Saudi Arabia and the winner of well, that yeah, game yeah, could I, have eliminated them. In the back them. of my mind, I'm thinking Saudi Arabia is not. No, no, no. I'm just talking. You're talking there, about. You know? I'm talking about literally yeah, know, controlling right. your own yeah, destiny. Yeah, so yeah, I was, agreed. I was disappointed to see all the nil nils today. I don't actually don't know what happened with the last game. What happened with the France? Uh, uh, well, France was down one to nothing, and then they scored four goals. And so, uh, <laughs> so Mbappe, there were some goals scored today. Oh, Mbappe good. had a sick goal. Uh, Giroud had, who apparently during last World Cup, by the way, he's now tied the record for the most World Cup goals ever. And in the last World Cup, which France won, he didn't have any. Well, they made sure to get him, as they say, off the schneid very quickly. And he had two goals, and he could have had four or five. Jeez. So okay. France looked 
remarkable. They won four to one. It was it was okay. a fun game for a while when the dream, you know, Australia is going to beat France. That didn't last long. All right. Well, the, the, the analyst darlings are Denmark. We got a lot of that from O'Hanlon last week. And so I picked them in my, not the, for the whole thing, but in the tier that I was participating in, I chose them in their tier and I'm supposed to be pulling for them because they're so forward thinking, but they only managed to tie. And then the Mexico Poland game ended up tight. I'm guessing that's a disappointment for Mexico, but it was, know. it would be a, it would be a disappointment for Mexico. Yep. Okay. Um, well, of course, the U.S. Open. By the way, I think it was. I mean, they were lucky to get out of there with the tie because uh, Poland actually had an unsuccessful uh, kick, like a penalty, penalty kick, penalty kick. Oh, by their by their top player Lewandowski, yeah, who is one of the top players in the world. Uh, it was not a great penalty kick, and apparently, I don't think he's ever scored in the World Cup, which was so. Now, I mean, well, that's too bad. Yeah, it's, it, it was too bad. Well, give me, remind, remind me, we should know this. We should know this off the top of our head this time of year, especially this time of the quadrennial cycle. What is the base rate on penalty kicks? I think it's around 60%. Matt can look it up, but I think it's 60, somewhere between 60% and two-thirds. Mm, I think it's higher than that. I would have gone seven. I would have gone higher, yeah. But I mean, really? you know, it's... Uh, yeah, I actually have some of that data. I can probably check during during our break. Okay. In my mind, my, my, my own mental confidence interval is like 60 to 80 or something like that. All right. So what about the U.S. match? They played their first one against Wales yesterday. They were up 1-0 for a long time. And then they fouled in the penalty area and gave up a free kick. And uh, they converted that and ended up with a tie against Wales. Seemed pretty disappointing. This, the advanced stats look yeah, like I mean, I mean, it looks like, you know, I, I mean, I guess maybe they were gassed. I, I don't I don't know exactly. But I mean, they, from watching it, it seemed like they were doing kind of the the soccer version of a prevent defense. And we all know that the, the, only, half, the only thing that prevents you from that prevents is, is you winning winning. And yeah. You know, look, the reality is look, uh, Gareth Bale was the guy that sunk the Philadelphia union, heart, broke our hearts in the uh, <laughs> MLS uh, finals. Like a month um, ago, and, not even yeah, a month ago, not even a month ago when I was I literally, it was my son and I were streaming the soccer game while we were at world series game six. Um, so, he drew a penalty in the box. It was a horrible penalty. It was absolutely a penalty. And it, to me, I'm not an expert, but it was one of the best PK kicks I had ever seen. The guy could have guessed right, and he still wasn't getting. He yeah, I mean, he, right. did, he, he, nailed he nailed it. He nailed it. He nailed it. He did top guess corner, right. And I, yeah, he nailed a top corner. And I mean, no, but really, so, hard assuming kick. you nail that, I mean, it is indefensible. By the way, the number seventy five point three three percent. So you guys want to know the success rate okay. of PKs yeah. in the World Cup? Seventy five percent. Okay, helpful. Well, you know, which which kind of free kicks do you find more impressive? Like Bale's, which was just a rocket to the corner, top corner, or Messi's, which was like a little dance, flop the goaltender over, and then pooch it over to the other side. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess, do you like uh, uh, Crosby's style of hockey or do you like Ovechkin's style of hockey? It's like <laughs> finesse versus just having the like uh, the most amazing shot you've ever seen. That's you know, right. I, I, that's right. I mean, I, I guess I could go either way, honestly. Well, Both are really impressive. We're going to talk We're going to talk in Q3 uh, with Will Haskett about heterogeneity in golf. And uh, that's one of the nice things about soccer. You do get this heterogeneity. The, the only thing I was going to comment also just, you know, about soccer in the U.S. is that now that we drew Wales, now the problem is we have to play England next. Now, of course, the good news is Wales still has to play England. But now I think U.S. strategy has to change entirely. Like now you have to start thinking about goal differential because the odds of beating England are low. And so I'm not saying impossible, 
but they're low. Uh, England it's the best fake. way to get a good goal differential is to score more than them, though. No, I, I, I agree with you, but, yeah. but, but Shane, now, I mean, it's going to come down to goal differential against England and basically who between the U.S. and Wales can pummel Iran by more goals. That's what it comes yeah, down yeah. to. Yeah, that's probably what it comes down to. I mean, again, so I, I would... You don't want to be... I mean, know, if, you, if you're kind of advocating that the U.S. should kind of be... I, I don't know, if in a strategic sense, does that mean you would want them to be less aggressive? Because, I mean, again, I'm... All, yes. After, after one half, I'm already tired of the U.S. version of prevent defense. Yeah. Right, so I, I kind of feel like that can't go any better against England than it would against Wales. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. That that's why they don't pay me the big bucks in soccer, <laughs> right? But yeah, other- regard regardless, I think you're right, Cade. That it's probably going to. Um, I mean, I guess the most likely outcome, or or unlikely outcome, is both the U.S. and Wales get beat by the U.K. by England, and then does come down to just who pummels Iran more or doesn't even pummel Iran in the case, as the case may be. That's right. That's I, right. I know Iran's going to be compared to Wales. I think Iran's going to be a little more. Yeah, hyped Matt, up to play Matt just put in the box. Exactly what I would say. Play for a tie. I mean, it's easy to say, just play for a tie against England and then beat yeah. Iran. Yeah. I get, yeah. If you could tell us right now that the U S would get a tie against England, we would take that in a oh my second. Goodness. How, How much would Iran want to knock? America out of this whole thing, though. I don't think. Yeah, I, I would. Ra- I'd rather go into that game. Is it the well, last one, well, the Iran game? It, well, U.S. Iran is, yeah. but also uh, Shane. Here's another question I was thinking to myself. Let's imagine England's already clinched, and they've already clinched first place in groups B, which is they're in. Do they have a preference? Would they rather the U.S. go with them or Wales? I'm just saying it's not obvious if like let no, but I think win. they'd probably play that game against Wales for real, just out of pride. I, there's got to be some thing going on there too. Well, right? they did a nice thing. Well, they did a smart thing. The U.S. despite their having games like 5 a.m., 8 a.m., 11 a.m., and 2 p.m., the U.S. Iran game on next Tuesday and the England Wales game are at the same time. So oh, they, they, games... they, they always do that in the World Cup now because back in the 80s, there was actual cases where teams like didn't like very obviously didn't try. Right. Well, there is the same. Those two games, which will be. decide, obviously, those two yeah. games will decide who advances with England. Um, those are both at uh, two o'clock next Tuesday. So just just I'm just going to keep on plugging O'Hanlon's book because I enjoyed it so much. If you want to read about the original case of that situation, I think that it managed to keep Algiers out of the knockout round. Yeah, because oh, yeah, they yeah, were, the, the, the other two teams just played to it. They 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 literally just passed itself uh, at midfield to each other for like the entire nine yeah, minutes. The entire, the entire it, it was it was only discernible from a regular soccer game after thirty minutes doing that, but. <laughs> Okay. Um, any other themes or questions y'all have about the World Cup other than obviously the Group B interests? Are there anything else you have your eye on about the World Cup? I just think, you know, what I've also found fascinating is that, um, you know, if you think about the number of upsets, obviously Saudi Arabia beating Argentina, obviously a massive upset. I think uh, Denmark, Tunisia, that's sad, even though it ended in a tie. I think uh, the Poland-Mexico game was an upset in the sense that that ended in a tie. So, you know, it, it hasn't taken 40 games for us to see. And it, it again, it just shows the inherent randomness in soccer. These teams are all good. They're all good. And someone says, well, and also I think we're getting confused also by the rankings. And what I mean by that is, oh, team that's 12th ranked is playing 28. And like, OK, it's I mean, well, I don't I, I don't think all those no, that's what I'm saying. The distribution of ranks 
is the, the difference in strength between one and 20 could be huge. But the difference in strength between 15 and 35, the same number of ranked positions yeah. could be very, very different. I'm saying mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a big mass of teams. Look, I think the way to view it is there's probably eight to 10 teams that are really good, 15 or 16 teams that are kind of all about the same, and then another eight teams, including Saudi Arabia, that would probably be at the bottom of the 32. And so if anybody in that middle plays each other, I'm putting no information at all that one team's 12th and the other team's 23rd. I don't think that means anything. And I mean, I think draws, things like draws are so kind of common, even among two teams that are not closely matched on paper, right? So, I mean, I think, again, again, you know, I mean, like things like Tunisia, Denmark, I think if those teams played 100 times, Denmark would win more often than Tunisia. But a draw on any one one matchup between them i'm not even sure i mean whether that you know you'd really qualify that as an upset certainly not on the scale of like saudi arabia beating argentina something that we talked about last week was that the tournament being played in the winter this year introduces additional uncertainty basically because the guys are coming off they're in middle of their season and they, that, that means two things one some some teams consist of players who have a lot of games under the belt right now, they might be tired. And the other is it's, it sounds like it's interfered some with their training. And so they don't have as much cohesion as a team, both of which increase the uncertainty. And so in some sense, these early draws, I mean, look, it's a really small sample, but I I walk into this tournament thinking it's even less predictable than usual Mm -hmm. based on O'Hanlon's conversation last week. Okay, guys. Well, we're in the very, very early stages of that. We'll know a lot more by the time we record the show next week, the, U.S. will have finished their group rounds, I think. Is that right? Yep. Everybody will be um, done. Well, not everybody. That, that, they'll keep, yeah, yeah, sorry. The knockout round group. for Group B will be the, – sorry, the group stage for Group B will be done. We'll know who'll advance. We'll, we'll know a whole lot more. Why don't we let Q1 sit there, grab a quick break, and come back and talk about non-World Cup sports in Q2? Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the second quarter now. Got the whole crew in here. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. Eric Bradle is here. And this is Cade Massey. You guys can jump into the conversation. We wish that you would. You can hit us up on Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle there. At W Moneyball. We follow our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. And we love to hear from you. Hit us up with your ideas, your suggestions, your comments, your criticisms, whatever you got, we like to hear from you. Also, you can send us email. We have a mailbag. The address there is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send us. We're glad to hear from you. We get as much of it as we can onto the air. Gentlemen, we just chatted through the World Cup. We're on day three, really day second full day, wrapping up today. And uh, lots more on that in the future over the next few weeks. Other sports going on. College football is really coming down the home stretch now. Last week of regular season right now. Of course, a big Thanksgiving weekend, rivalry weekend. Some of that got pulled into this last weekend, but a lot coming up. And then the championship, conference championships on the other side of that. What in the world of college football caught your eye over the weekend? Or are you thinking about for this upcoming weekend? Well, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about it. I mean, to me, I 
I just don't know what to think right now of uh, USC versus LSU, because I can see a scenario where a two-loss LSU team goes over a one-loss USC team. I think right now US, LSU is ranked higher, right? We don't know in the college football rankings, but in the I, I think LSU is five and USC six at the moment. In in the in the AP like the coaches or? ranking in like the yeah, coaches yeah. and the AP rankings. So I'm just wondering what's going to happen. I mean, look, LSU running the tables. I mean, they're still going to have to play Georgia probably in the in the uh, championship. No, game. they're playing Georgia for sure. Yeah. All right. And so that's no. Oh, you're right. They both clinch. So that's going to be no easy feat. But what do you do? It, so a two loss LSU is going to go over a one loss, for example, USC or a one loss Clemson. I think they would. If they beat Georgia, they have to beat Georgia for this to happen, right? I mean, yeah, they beat Georgia. They win the they win the SEC. Everyone knows it's the toughest conference. They have a they have a a great season under their belt. And yeah, I don't think there'd be. I mean, I would take them in a heartbeat, and I suspect others would as well. So that then it would get then we would get. Let's be clear, we'd get LSU, we'd get Georgia, who most people consider a lock to still go anyway, unless they got blown out. Let's assume they don't get blown out by LSU. So LSU and Georgia go. The the Big Ten winner, so the winner of this week's game, and well, let's assume whoever wins this week's game is going to win the Big Ten championship game. We don't know that that's true, but let's assume that that's true for a second. So there'll be a Big Ten team in there, yeah. um, and then who's going to be the fourth team? Uh, maybe it's TCU. If TCU goes undefeated, it's TCU. Um, if not, TCU will be out. But we'll have again some choice between Clemson. Uh, Loser uh, of the Big Ten. Uh, the loser sorry, of the, loser right. of Ohio, Michigan. Yeah, the loser of the Big Ten will also have one loss. Uh, USC will have one loss. Um, I guess that's it at this point, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And all, by the way, I mean, we're baked into your assumption there is that USC wins. USC still has Notre Dame this weekend. They have the big, they have the Pac-12 championship. So everybody, I mean, TCU, LSU, and, and, and USC all have competition in front of them to get there. Um, but sure, there there are there there could be some interesting battles. Or what if they all lose and we have the opposite problem? Where now we're having a debate on who we should be, who we should include. What one of the things that that you can't help but take away from this past weekend is that just when you think you know who's not going to lose, they do. And the the Tennessee, I mean, we had explicitly was, yeah. we had explicitly baked them in because they seem to have one of the easier roads. And then they go and do what they did to with South Carolina. It just reminds me, guys, we've talked about this over the years. I think the first time we started talking about it was when some Serena, Eric, Eric, you probably remember when she was on some long run, she was about to win the most grand slams in a row or something like that. And everyone just assumed that she was going to win it. It seemed inevitable. And she didn't. I think and, she might've been, you, there's many matches at, in the last five years, but it might've been her match against, she played Roberta Vinci in one final and, there were just a couple of matches you're like, I can't believe she lost that. And she ended up getting stuck like we all should be stuck. She ended up getting stuck on 23 majors <laughs> and never actually. She ended up, I think, 0-4 in her last four major okay. finals. Okay. Well, one of the early ones, she was on a real run, and we just assumed it was inevitable that she would win. And the reminder again and again and again is that it's just not as inevitable as you think. It's the mistake I feel like I make all the time when I look at the NFL. I'm always like, oh, well who's going to stop the chiefs or who's, you know, type of thing. And it's like, well, I mean, though any given, you know, on any particular Sunday, it's definitely much more likely the chiefs are going to win than the other, whatever other team they're play, facing. But, you know, especially well, in the so playoffs, one loss completely changes the, you know, the entire hundred percent. I mean, 
Well, look, I mean, we were all, we thought no one could stop the bills like three weeks ago, mm-hmm. I mean, two in a row. I mean, it's a perfect example of it. And so, I mean, before we, this is why we ought to entertain Eric's question here, because I mean, Massey Peabody right now would make LSU a 16 point dog to Georgia, a 16 point dog in the SEC championship. So we're not that far off the line. So it's going to be a big double digit line. And what we're saying here is, yeah, that's true. But those teams, those teams win occasionally. So Remind don't me, Kate, who I just don't remember. Who did LSU lose to? Who, they, who are their two losses? They also beat Alabama, am I right? They did. They lost to All Tennessee. Right. Tennessee housed them pretty good. Um, and then Florida State beat them in the first weekend okay. of the season. All right, let me, let me take back what I said. If by some miracle they beat Georgia, if you beat Alabama and Georgia in the same year, right. you yeah. should be the damn one seed. I'm putting you in that tournament. You're in. I'm well, joking when I say they're going to be the one. But I'm just commenting that if they beat Alabama and Georgia, they have to be in. I don't care how many losses they have. Come well, Ma- Maddie is confirming that Massey Peabody is with the market here and that DraftKings has Georgia 15-point favorite in the SEC title game. But the point is, the point is, yes, see the line, realize what it is, and realize that, you know, upsets happen, even big upsets happen. How much would TCU be an underdog in the Big 12 championship game? Who are they playing potentially, like K-State? Do I have that right? Yeah, they right now, as long as K-State beats Kansas, it'll be K-State. If K-State loses to Kansas, and they're, they might be 10-point. I've got that line somewhere. Um, and if Texas beats Baylor, Texas would sneak in there. Right now, we show Kansas at 14 and TCU at 16, so they're real close to each other. Well, the, there's actually a bit of a spread there. We would make Kansas State about a two-point favorite over TCU, I'm not sure. We won't be too far off the market, but that'll be close. close All right. That. So TCU has a, you know. A real match. A real, a real match. But it also means they have a, you know, I don't know. I don't know who they're playing this way. They're playing, oh, I see they're playing Iowa State. So they probably have, in your guy's mind, they have to have a one-third chance of making the playoffs, maybe 70%, 75% to win this week, and then 45% the week after. So they have to be somewhere around a third, right? Less than, less than 0.5. That's the most important. No, 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 no. Significantly less than 0. 0.5, yeah, for but, sure. Um, so it's it's we have a we have a lot of football in front of us. Yeah, one thing I want to point out, in case you haven't, did did did, did y'all watch the USC UCLA game late Saturday? Yes. It wasn't even the latest Pac-12 game, but oh my god! I mean, there was a point, guys, audience Shane, who, who didn't watch it. There was a point. I forget the exact number, Eric. You might remember, but it was either sixteen or eighteen consecutive drives across between both teams without a punt right. <laughs> 16 or 18 drives but this is this without is a real contrast like a, kind of the opposite of the jets versus new england yeah <laughs> but this is also but crazy this is also, that game let's just point but, that out <laughs> but this is also my vision just because of the excitement of usc because of caleb williams because of lincoln riley i just have this feeling if usc runs the table they're going to put them in. They're going to want to see, in my view, the Heisman Trophy winner. I think Caleb Williams is the Heisman Trophy winner. They're going to want to see him in the playoffs. They're going to want to see Lincoln Riley in the playoffs. They're going to want to see the high-scoring USC go against the vaunted Georgia defense. That's my opinion. But I, I, I don't. I don't think. I don't. I don't disagree with you, especially if they they're going to, they, they, to have gotten there. They will have beaten UCLA, Notre Dame, and probably Oregon in consecutive weeks, and that's impressive. And by, and by the way, I mean, if you haven't seen USC play, you're missing something really special in Caleb Williams. I mean, the guy, the guy is impressive. He and, was great with Oklahoma. 
Well, let's not and that was even better. I'm not. I'm not really interested in that part of his career. <laughs> I'm Sorry. trying to. Forget, I'm trying to forget it, especially his debut. Um, but with USC, he's easier to pull for, and they their defense can't stop anybody. But it almost doesn't matter because their offense is so spectacular with him. But there's also this lesson in there. People are like, "Well, there's Lincoln Riley turning around USC in a single season." Well, how did he do it? He brought in a lot of people out of the portal, but the most important person he brought was Caleb Williams. When you bring a quarterback like that, it allows a program to turn around more quickly. Hendon Hooker transfer into Tennessee. And when you can land that level of quarterback, you've got such an advantage. And the transfer portal allows you to do that. But just a quarterback is so 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 much categorically different, categorically more influential in college football than in professional football. Um, okay, guys, that's I was also, college football. Just quickly, just one last thing. I was, I was very impressed by Kentucky this last week that they were competitive with Georgia um, in the sense of their defense played well. Uh, you know, 16 to 6 wasn't the final score I was expecting. And that has to give other teams some belief and hope that Georgia is beatable when mm-hmm. it comes to the playoffs. I don't think this is an unbeatable Georgia team. That was the other thing I took away from this weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, we're 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 we haven't even mentioned the biggest. Pop. Is it the biggest game of the year? It's one of the biggest games of the year. Michigan going into Ohio State. They are healthy, eight and a half point underdog. We've been anticipating that line for a long time now, but they got them last year for the first time in a very long time, and they seem to be over the psychological hurdle. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But I saw, I heard a number. They're expecting something like. Take a guess. Do y'all know? What do you expect? What do you think the forecasted um, uh, TV numbers are? How many people do you think are going to view? Well, it's in the rundown here. Oh, gosh, I've already given that away. 20 million. 20 million. You got it, Eric. 20 million. That is a big number. And then when you add the 120,000 or whatever the number is that are going to be at at seeing the game live. Yeah, those are big stadiums. But by the way, let's just be clear. Michigan came an inch away from not being undefeated oh, no, going into that game. And, no. they, and they were outplayed in that game, let me just say. But either way, they're undefeated. Ohio State's undefeated. Well, I mean, Michigan's T- not. TC yeah. tried to, TC and Michigan were doing the same thing at the same time. Back to back, within minutes, they had the exact same experience. Um, and they just both barely got it done. I mean, Ohio State was close. I mean, Maryland, was it Maryland? Maryland had the ball late with the chance to drive and get a and 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 yeah play, it's a fake 10 point win in the sense that the last play of the game was an interception and run back for a touchdown for three yards they were throwing like five yard lines so it looks like a 10 point game but maryland was within three of was, ohio state tight. also all right what about on the nfl side uh, it sounds like y'all were um paying some attention to that jets pat yeah i've got i've got the most fun stat from this weekend are you guys ready for this Two inches. Uh, I'm, I'm right. two inch stat. Paid attention to it in uh, in the NFL this this week. Yeah, the Jets averaged two point seven seven inches per play in the second no. half. No inches. Two point seven seven inches. They half. had two yards the entire That's half. Yards. What? That's it. This is why everyone's on Zach Wilson's case. Yes, and he's he, he's, yeah, he's terrible quarterback apparently. Yeah. But one of the things that I wanted to point out is that, of course, the, the Jets lost the game with New England's uh, punt return on the last play. But the stat that, that's been talked about is how punt returns, successful touchdown punt returns, have essentially disappeared recently. They used to happen much more frequently. And I'm trying to figure out why. I mean, what, what punters, could- I, I, punters are supposed to aim for the edges. Well, they didn't use that to- one was right down the middle for whatever reason. I mean, but it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to me that's, a, I mean, 
all of a sudden they learn that? I mean, I yeah, I mean, they're much better. Punters have punters like all football players have gotten better over time. Well, even closer, yeah. Shane, place kickers we know are just dramatically yeah. better than to be yeah, yeah. hunters are a close cousin to them i mean they even train differently adi they're better athletes they it's just it really i we don't see it as well it doesn't translate as explicitly with punting as it does with place kicking but it stands to reason if place kicking has advanced as much as it has that punting would but it's a good question it's, a, it's like a it's like I mean, a it's, lopez it's question do they have do they have data on the ball placement for how often you know are they getting it to i the think side that's most of it i mean that's gotta be most of it is there any rule changes like we've seen with the kick returns uh, that's dramatically changed the kick returns? So. Um, so. so I'm just I'm hard. I mean, it's it's I feel I feel that's obviously got to be part of it, but maybe there's a new strategy I mean, maybe that that's really has eliminated the possibility of a of a return. Adi, do we know? Is it not just a, a it's not just folklore that the number of TDs is down, the punt returns for touchdowns is down. Like, oh, is yeah. it a true? Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's a stat that, that has been, I mean, at least if you trust the Twitter place where I saw it. <laughs> no, I don't. I want you to be more skeptical. You're usually the skeptic of these days. Yeah. yeah and I mean, I mean, one thing you could look facts, at, right? uh, one thing that would be kind of interesting to look at is the decrease in punt return touchdowns versus the decrease in kickoff return touchdowns, right? Because kickoffs have changed. Oh yeah, but they had rules. Those were those were like real rule changes. Right. I'm just saying, like, if, if you know, I I think uh, um, if Audi's still kind of mostly being about just punters being better at what they're in comparison, because there are different rules to those. That's an interesting question. Are people asking that question, Audi? Or are they just posing the? They're just noting that it's. Down? Uh, I, I mean, I'm going to turn it over to my students and wonder. I mean, it's definitely an, a nice little fun project to get an answer to. Yeah. Um, because I mean, obviously they, they can go down with punter quality, but to drop so precipitously over. It's all. It's not just punter quality. I think it's also. I mean, to the extent that it's strategic, I think people teams are realizing how disastrous fumbles, like turnovers, are on punt returns. Yeah. And so it would be good to look at how often fair catches. You know, like well, I, that's what I was going to get at. Fair Shane, catches like, are maybe up too, or probably up. Like maybe we should, you know, like one of the nice stats that comes out of baseball now is batting average of balls in play. So maybe what we should do is let's eliminate, like maybe also teams are using analytics in the following sense. Let's forget fair catches for a second. Let's forget ones that are kicked out of bounds. For the ones that are caught and returned, like batting average on balls in play, how many of those are going for touchdowns? So my mm-hmm. guess is a couple things are happening at the same time. One is teams are kicking the ball out of bounds more. Second, teams are realizing the cost, as you said, Shane, of fumbles. And third, maybe because of analytics, teams are better at saying, we need to kick to this angle, to this part of the field, which limits the possibility of a touchdown. So all three of those things may be Mm -hmm. combining to less touchdowns. So Matt's giving us the number 14 per season in the 2000s, and that held 13 through 15. Through two thousand, now it's eight and a half per season. Yeah, and so I want to see the decomposition. Right. I want to see the decomposition of how many punts are there, how many go out, like what percentage go out of bounds, what percentage are fair caught, what percentage are the ones in play. I want the equivalent of BABIP for punts. Yeah, so basically for fifteen years it was you know thirteen or fourteen, and it's halved in the last couple. But I don't really trust the trend that much. That's a, well, I mean half one forty to seventy. That's a huge drop, right? Do you trust it in two years? I mean, it's a big enough sample, I guess, we should trust. I don't know. Well, if you just use the, my, my simple Poisson trick, just take the square root, and that gives you the standard deviation. Uh, that's many. <laughs> okay. Many, many. So, okay. 
Good puzzle, Adi. Good puzzle. Um, all right, guys. What else in the NFL? And of course, we've got the three-game well, Thanksgiving Day in front of us. I mean, I, I guess I, I, another kind of just interesting stat because we, you know, obviously, both, both the Patriots and Jets played this epic battle of teams with great defenses, uh, but ones that can't score to save their lives. Um, they're not even the like most extreme teams in this regard. The Denver, what the Denver Broncos are doing this season is incredible. They're actually on pace to be best in the league in points allowed and worst in the league in points scored. <laughs> wow. That's incredible, right? That's incredible. The last time I looked at the last time it's been done, that's been done was the 1946 Pittsburgh Steelers. Well, you would also think, Shane, the reason that might be also hard to do is if your defense is playing really well, you would imagine then that means the other team is also starting from yeah, a- yeah no 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 I, I mean the, the fact that they're like the lowest in points allowed when their offense is probably giving them very disadvantageous fielding position and then the defense is trading back better you, you know i mean i, I giving think them back better it, field position you would think they would be scoring more yeah you would think you would think that but uh it's a pretty it's a pretty incredible stat so are we we started the season bemoaning the NFC, talking about there's nobody over there, there's a ton of AFC teams, and now we have a couple of teams looking pretty strong. Just last night, the Niners housed the Cardinals. Maybe that was no great accomplishment, but the Niners have looked good the last few weeks. And Massey Peabody updated today, we have them number two in the league, only a touch more than a point behind Buffalo and a quarter of a point, maybe a third of a point, above Dallas, the number two and three teams in the league. This is just one ranking system, but, and that's Dallas really tied with KC. So two of the top. I was going to say, how is KC right there, right. in the top three or not, not number one, actually, but well, there's, had my, some dodgy, there's my inevitability thing. Yeah, that's your inevitability. And, and also you, you just watch them. I mean, they, they barely got by San Diego, but they've been a little shifty over the last month or so. Dallas and San Francisco have been super impressive. I mean, Dallas, what they did to Minnesota, I mean, this is one of the worst losses in the history of the league for a seven and one team. No, that was impressive. I mean, I think Dallas is inconsistent though as well. I mean, they, it's not like they've been you know winning every game or anything like that. But no, I mean, it's I mean, it, it is. Well, they didn't have Prescott for a long time, so there's a, there's, there's. I even mean more like I mean more recently. I think they've dropped. I mean, they're not on even a winning streak right now of more than one, right? But, well, but regardless, um, I, I mean, I do think the Eagles and Cowboys do stand out as very very good teams. In the NFC, I. I in well, my I own didn't even get to the rankings. I would not put them on par with Kansas City well, no, or even not, Buffalo. As, but well, as you know, the Eagles, of course, have beaten both the Vikings and Cowboys this year. So mm-hmm. I understand. Uh, you can only put you can put whatever weight you want on that. I mean, it's, well, mm-hmm. you put the amount of weight that a statistical model puts on that. Not more, not less. I mean, That's they've right. beaten That's those right. two teams. The rest of their games have not been particularly difficult games. Um, so they have two good wins and the other six, you know, I think Adi's talked about this. So the other six or seven wins are basically non-informative. Like, yeah, I mean, they're not bad, but it doesn't tell me anything about the upper right tail of the distribution that uh-huh. they beat, you know, the Colts or barely beat the Colts. That's not helping them, you know, us discriminate whether they're the first team in the league or the eighth team in the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Vikes, they get your pets. Shane. Um, yeah, the, no, the, 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 the Thursday night game. I'm pretty excited about that. It's a pretty good lineup, actually, for Thursday. Very good. Better by the way, than, any, um, of you think, any of you think, by the way, that the Bills are a lock at Lions? Think again. Let me just tell you, 
It's no lock that they are going to beat the Lions. Lions have won three straight games. They they just beat the Giants and dismantled them pretty well. They've been scoring pretty much at will. They're a very high-scoring team. I'm not saying the Bills aren't going to win, but if you think the Bills are going into Detroit and winning 35-3, to that is not my prediction of the score in that game. I yeah. think the Bills will win, but I don't think the Bills – could someone tell me it's a six-point game at the end, eight-point game? Yeah, it's going to be somewhere in that range. I think the Lions are pretty good. Oh, I agree with you, though. Jay. I mean, they, all, they all could three be games good are or, interesting. I mean, the Lions, they're on kind of a run, but this is the same team that, within recent memory, got beat by the Patriots 29 nothing, And this is the Patriots that now, you know, can't buy a touchdown. So, I don't know. I mean, I no, any any given Thursday, you, you I mean, I agree with you, Eric, but... I mean, of all, of all the games, that one probably is going to be you'd forecast to be the most lopsided, right? Absolutely. Well, it's, it's the I don't know what the actual line is. We nine make, and a half. Wow! Yeah, so okay, we might even have go. an edge on that one. Um, we'd make it more like six or seven, depending on probably more like seven, depending on what you're going to do with home field advantage. But um, Buffalo by seven, and then you add home field. On no, top I, of that, I had, no, the no, other way around. We had Buffalo by nine, and then you take home field away because they're in Detroit. So, oh, 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 okay, seven or something like that. But I'm just entertained by the league scheduling Buffalo for that game. You know, they're like Detroit. We always give them a Thanksgiving game. We got to put somebody decent in there for them to play. We didn't know that Detroit was going to be on a three game win streak. Nor did we know, by the way, that Buffalo was played their last game in Detroit. Yeah, that's, yeah so actually, that's Buffalo's right, already right. been in. But that's I mean, it wasn't random. They knew Buffalo was going to be playing Thursday. They're like, well, it's snow. Where should they play? Oh, Detroit. This field's open. So yeah. it's actually, that's a big advantage also, I think, for Buffalo. They don't have to travel in. They're already there. They just played in the stadium. It can't hurt. How about that? Right. All right. All right, guys. Why don't we change gears and cover a couple of additional sports? Um, it, we, we talked last week about the some of the one-loss records or the points we're seeing in the NHL. We're seeing yeah. a couple of teams really blow it out. And, in fact, the Devils – are doing something they've never done before, right? What is going on, Shane? Well, I mean, so both the Bruins and De- I mean, the Devils have won 13 in a row, which is pre- very impressive, I gotta say. Um, you know, win streaks like that don't roll around very often. So that's probably the unprecedented fact that you referred to with them. The Bruins actually, though they've only won seven in a row, have an even more impressive record. So the the Devils are 16 and three. The Bruins are 17 and two. And these are not the kind of records you yeah. typically see in hockey that said i mean you know I, 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 that statement is not an empirical i mean it could be that you get streaks like that i mean the streak's more notable because it's occurring at the start of the season i guess right or it's, you know the entirety of their record right but uh but still i mean obviously nobody believes that either team's going to stay on pace for that but if they were to stay on pace for that it would blow it would it would be an incredible historical like well, so let's let's do let's treat hockey with the same respect we treat baseball every summer because we start talking about okay, guys, early in the season we see these big records. What do you think is going to do over the course of the season? It allows us to talk about one of our favorite topics, regression to the mean, and practice it a little bit. And this is this is this is more fun territory because we take people like Adi out of his the comfort of a baseball park and walk him out onto the ice and say now. Now on the ice, Odd, well, tell us how you're going to project the Bruins. We're starting about 17 and two. Why don't we just have Adi interview Shane for the relevant facts? Adi, right. what do you? What's the end of season record for the Bruins? 
Okay, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to ask some questions. So in baseball, what you do is you add 15 wins and 15 losses, and that's your to the current wins and losses record, and that's your forecast of the probability going out. That seems to match the the variance distribution at uh, uh, the team talent and the binomial ad, uh, odds, the two variance components we call that in statistics. So what did you do? What, what, is there an equivalent in hockey? Do you, do you know the number? Is it 5 and 5, 10 and 10? Explain to me where that 15 comes from. Uh, well, where it comes from. It, it's it, the 15 and 15. It comes from matching the underlying sort of power ranking distribution. That's sort of the true talent distribution variance and then the binomial variance. So those are the two pieces. Um, so when you observe 17 and 3, you essentially have to shrink down. You, you, you ask yourself, well, so what? So it, uh, it, it would be the equivalent of, kind of say, your a priori. It's your prior. That's right. Your, your prior number of game. You're adding like a prior number of 15 wins and 15 losses. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's has an equivalent in a beta binomial. Um, it's really only 15. That's that's I, 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 that's what the experts from MLB are using, and that seems to match pretty good. It, it matches what what my predictions have, have generally come out using, you know, standard more more frequentist regression based methods. Yeah, I mean, the logic we were kind of bandying about last week, I think, was sort of like how many how many prior games would you add, like like at what point in the season do you want kind of the prior to be equally weighted with. You yeah, know, the actual observed data. Right, that's the same question. So in baseball. No, right. I, I just, again, I, I, 30 games into this baseball season, I'm typically not buying into the actual results equally with my prior. So I, I the logic that you, like that 15, 15 doesn't really match my own internal logic for baseball, because I, I will say like, for hockey, I kind of feel like you almost want it at the halfway point of the season, you, uh, still half and half or something like that. So in I baseball, think. you're you're not happy at, at, at thirty games in. You don't you don't just take the average of the current winning, current percentage with the prior percentage, and that's your your best bet going forward. No, no. I mean, if what if do you do? Kind of, <laughs> well, I I mean, I kind of like basically. I would I, say I, stronger with the prior, right? Stronger yeah, with the prior. yeah. Like like. I think I think I would have the prior like I think the the actual season passes my prior in terms of weight in like mid June, which is how many games, Shane? Which would be like uh, I uh, closer to like, thirty. That's more like sixty. Yeah, 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 sixty games or so in. So yeah, I guess I would kind of die right, but anyway, okay, but but at least we're sort of thinking about the same, you know. It, yeah. So for, yeah. so for hockey, I would guess. I mean, I would be tempted to almost use that fifteen fifteen again, even though it's like half the number of games in the actual season, you know, just because I do kind of feel like records are kind of all over the place. And it also is like, I mean, records do kind of spread. Records are more spread out in hockey and basketball overall. Like the actual spread, spread in, I think, winning percentage is you know, at the end of the season, it's much more spread out in hockey and basketball I'll just point out, than well, it is in baseball. That's because the binomial N is smaller, so you're going to get more spread in the final percentages because there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. My, my, let me just one point one thing out, that the 15-15 is prior neutral. It's not something yeah. – you're not shrinking towards the, 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 the preseason estimate of that team's talent. You're, you're, you're neutral. It's like I know nothing. Yeah, no, no, I understand. You're regressing down to the half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, yeah, find no, okay. much, I find that much less intuitive. This whole methodology, I find much less intuitive than the way we were talking about it last week, which was 
you have some actual prior expectation. Yeah, and like the, I, the I, whole I, question I, becomes how much weight to put on that expectation. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's funny because there's the studies that actually do this carefully. Generally, what they do is they do careful forecasting of future data without data bleed. So that's, you know, they and they kind of look historically what works the best. And they have found that, that preseason estimates just tend to overfit. And that you just don't do worse, if worse at all, or substantially worse, when you just shrink to a half. Um, and it's very surprising, but but well, but, I mean, again, I, but but again, I, I we have to be a little careful here because what I don't know what the objective function for those little comparisons are. Is it kind of average yeah, error really across error. all teams, or That's you know, because right. we're ta- we're just talking at the top, and I don't think necessarily no, you know there there I don't right. think you want to shrink to a half necessarily, no, right? No. You know, I have to okay, say, so let's, 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 let me just give you a shout out to that methodology. Remember, midseason, we were talking about the great Yankees or their first half and fan graphs and all the 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 good the good forecasters with their standard trinket method. were still thinking of the Yankees as the fourth or fifth best team in, in Major League Baseball, having essentially shrunk their their prior season so darn hard um, back to their prior, which was they weren't a great team. They were just good. And that other teams were great. They were right. <laughs> yeah, Adi, it was so you. It was such a theme there, and maybe the two thirds yeah. mark of the season is you're like they can't. They're too. They're shrinking these things to maybe halfway through the season. Two thirds mark. Yeah. You're like this is too extreme. And we all thought Fangraphs seemed a little bit off, but it was it was exactly this shrinkage thing. We need to take our own medicine. So let's push through on the Bruins. Um, give us the give us a reasonable expectation for the Bruins before the season started, Shane. Just the one loss. Oh, I mean, I guess I would I would put them at like I mean they were supposed to be a good team, so I think like you know the like like low fifties range, you know, like fifty to fifty five somewhere in there wins. From so what is wins. what per, what percentage is that? Ah, uh, fifty five, uh, like sixty seven, two thirds. Fifty five, fifty five is two thirds. Okay, so our prior on this team was two thirds, and the question we're basically asking is. What is your posterior having observed 19 yeah. of their games for? Yeah. Their so they're right. Quality. So yeah, my prior is, was at 67. My, my day, the data is right now at 90%. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you, so, so here's the challenge we're always yeah. faced with. Yep. How do you blend the data with your prior? And the methodology we were playing with last week was, well, it just depends on, you can, you can think about the weight on your prior as a, a sample size, a fictitious sample size. Right. And, so how much, how strongly did you believe in that 0.67 is kind of what it comes down to? Yeah, no. And I mean, if we use kind of like, I mean, ad, pretty ad hoc as, as, as far as numbers to add, but like, if we, if we took Audi's little, like add 15 wins and 15 losses, you know, then that would be, uh, that would, that would kind of put them down. That would actually put them down at 0.65. That would all, all kind of almost shrink them overly like, you know, because again, that's shrinking them towards a half. Right. You know, so it I feels could. it feels weird to use baseball's weight, but yeah. it's, so, I mean, it's, I guess like what I could do is like I'll, I'll add uh, I'll add a guy. I could shrink them to, uh, you know, 20, I guess, add 10 wins, 10 losses or uh, 20 wins, 10 losses. That would put them at 75 percent or so. Point seven five. Point seven five for the rest. That's yeah. your, that's so, your so, so that's shrinking. That's using the same kind of adding 30 games of prior weight. But just but kind of aligning it with my kind of prior 
beliefs yep. that they were a, a two thirds, you know, winning to, you know, a, a, a 0.67. Uh, and you believed team. them to be 0.67 and you want to put about 30 games worth of weight on your prior, which yep. means that at the end of the season, your, your priors will carry about what? Two, two, two thirds, three quarters, three quarters, three quarters. That's right. Um, on the, on the end season. And when you combine that, yeah. it leaves you with a 0.75 forecast going forward from this point on. That's, That's how correct. you integrate your priors with this crazy mm-hmm. 17 and 2. It's not 90%. You're going to shrink it down and you're going to shrink it down to 75% going forward. All right. That's right. Cool. All right. Good little, good little statistical update on the NHL. That has been two more quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second half of the show now, Q3. We have two interviews in the back half of the show this week. Increasingly, we're doing two interviews. Back to the original, the first, how many years did we do before COVID? Six years. The first six years of the show, we always did two interviews. We're delighted this week to grab our first interview with Will Haskett. Will is the author of a brand new book called The Science of Golf, The Math, Technology, and Data Behind Golf. Will's a longtime sports broadcaster. He's also a colleague of ours on SiriusXM. He hosts on the SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio. I think it's Channel 92. Will, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for making time for the show. Fantastic cross-channel promotion there, guys. Thank you so much. Good to Absolutely. be here. Absolutely. If only we had the radio voice you have going on, man. Can you train us on that? Can you can you give us some tips? Uh, cigar and uh, bourbon the night before, I think, is what I tell some of the kids. But the beauty about this broadcast business now is it doesn't matter as long as the content is good. It's no uh-huh. longer the uh, the previous generation where you had to gargle with gravel the night before. So it's I'm glad I still have it, but I, I think content is way more important now than who's delivering it or how it sounds when it's being delivered, which is which is the way it always should have been. Well, tell us a little bit about where your content comes from. Give us a background on yourself and how you got into this. Why is it that you're hosting the the, the PGA Tour Radio? And, yeah. and then we'll dive into the book. Yeah, next year will be my 10th year doing live golf for the PGA Tour. And you can hear that on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. And, and I, st- I do fill in with some of the talk program that's over there as well. Uh, so 10 years with the PGA Tour, I've been a sports broadcaster my entire life. I mean, since I was 15 years old, I've broadcast 14 different sports at a championship level and um, golf has always been near and dear to me as a player, as someone who worked in the business and then got into it from a broadcasting standpoint. And really, it's just as a sports broadcaster, as a play-by-play guy, I've always been a big stats, data, math guy, whether it's the fact that math was always my subject of choice as a kid or the fact that I just connect easier to any sport that I'm learning by sort of diving into stats and now in the world of advanced analytics it really informs, I think, better context of how I call a game or call a sport. And it also okay. informs, I think, more intelligent conversations with athletes, coaches, or whoever you might be. So it's way easier for me if I'm doing a basketball game or let's talk about golf. I'm going on the PGA Tour. It's way easier for me to approach a coach or a top 20 player, 30 player in the world and sort of have the context of, of seeing how they're performing and then having a conversation. So instead of just like, how are you swinging? Be like, hey, I've noticed this trend or whatever it might be in your game. Like, talk to me about that. Or I know that you're measuring or looking for improvement in these particular areas. Let's have a conversation about it. So to me, to my audience, I, I think it's been my best weapon in terms of okay. being as informed and educational of a broadcaster as I can be. 
Well, do, do, do you find that everybody's up for being approached like that? Or, I mean, I think there are soccer managers who, if you went and said, sure. Hey, your expected goals today was 0.55 and you actually got, you know, zero. So what happened? They'd be like, what the hell? And so in golf, what is the level of sophistication? How much is it a function of age? I mean, do you approach the guys that yeah. are new on the tour different than the guys who are on the senior tour about this stuff? What's your sense of it? Anybody that's on the PGA Tour right now that is not tapping into all the data and tools that are at their fingertips uh, is is doing it wrong. They're eventually going to get. Okay, you say, you say that and you believe that I agree with you, but where are they? Well, and here's the thing. Some of them may not consciously know it, but their coaches and people behind the scenes are aware of it and then then are structuring their conversations and their work together from that. So to me, it's, yeah, are there players that I'm not going to go up to and ask strokes gain questions to? Yeah, sure. I probably know that they're not. And honestly, I'm more attracted to the human psychological elements of sport more than I am sometimes the technical side of it. And so there's a lot of great questions to ask how things get done. And I'll give you a really quick example. Adam Spenson wins the final PGA Tour event this past weekend at the RSM Classic. I was covering it. I got to walk the final 18 holes with Adam. And he's talked about rededicating himself to the game. Just more time, more time in the gym, more time understanding his tendencies, probably looking at stats, doing a lot of these things to make himself a complete dedicated professional. And I, my question to him after the round was, what about that process? What about you ramping up that process allowed you to win for the first time? Like, what right. was a tactic? What was something that came out of that discovery that yeah. allowed you to get the ball in the hole in fewer strokes than anybody else for the first time in your PGA Tour career? And he's not the most verbose guy, and I probably got a very stock, you know, 10, 15 second answer. But I appreciated the question, and I appreciated the look I got from him. Like, the yeah, you know what? You're right. Uh, this has validated the work that I've put in, and okay. I know it's going to take more work like this to achieve at this level so these guys out here especially on the pga tour if they're not investing in it then they're going to be there'll be a dinosaur in the next okay. five ten years easily okay i was just going to ask you will what do you think is the number one area of golf that players are using analytics do you think it's for training do you think it's for oh my you know swing speed is not fast enough do you think it's oh you know i'm 112th in putting or i'm good at these types of putts not these types of putts do you think it's where do you think is the number one area it's being used at the moment yeah i i think it's obviously and this is not to bail out of the answering the question i think it's obviously tailor-made to that individual right so most guys i would say are look at weaknesses and improve those strengths a lot of guys know their strengths and will continue to work on those strengths but i think for the most part every pga tour player probably has a weakness there are very few i would say total package players even some of the best players in the world you know rory mcelroy was the best golfer this past year and he's been a flawed putter more years than not. And this year he wasn't. His strokes gain numbers bear that out. And he talked a lot about the work that he put in with Brad Faxon and others to be a great putter. And so I think that was definitely a situation where he invested in a weakness, but he certainly knows that his superpower is his driving ability. And he looks at all of the strokes gain stats too. So I think that there's, I think those guys are looking into both of them. But for the most part, it's probably guys that are looking at weaknesses or looking at little areas. And we can dive down to every 10 yards, every 25 yards. Like, is a guy really bad from 75 to 100 yards? What does that mean for his wedge control? Dustin Johnson became one of the best players in the world because he wasn't a good feel wedge player and literally spent thousands and thousands of shots on track, man, getting the the data from every single wedge to learn how to hit the certain windows and hit the certain stock shots and became one of the best wedge players in the world. And lo and behold, became the number one player in the world, mm -hmm. uh, you know, however many years ago that that came. So these guys look into those weaknesses 
and find ways to improve them. So I think that's the number one area where I think those guys look to do it. But certain guys certainly say, oh, this is my strength too. I'm going to make sure I continue honing my strengths. So this, this is, this feels like too much of a softball question, but it's just striking me the way you're describing this, that it, that the way a golfer evolves during his career must be different now, given the data that are available. I mean, no, yeah, no doubt. They, they just couldn't, they couldn't know things at the level of detail that we know now, and therefore no, they no. couldn't work and refine as it quite, you know, with, as productively, presumably. Right. And anecdotally speaking, and I talk about it in the book is we know that if you are longer, you are a better golfer. Anecdotally speaking, Jack Nicholas was longer than most players. Greg Norman was longer than almost everybody. Seve Ballesteros swung out of his shoes, but we just, but there were other things and we didn't have concrete data. Well, Mark Brody developing strokes gained and then how that sort of has been utilized and trickled down into the game. We now know even much more so how much length has an advantage in the game and it's it's not even justifying that finding. It's then how it's informed course strategy and course management. And uh-huh. so to go back to the previous question and answer that, I think a lot of guys are using data too to map out how they attack golf courses, where they hit shots. You yeah. know, you don't realize. I mean, Tiger Woods is probably the most conser- the most successful conservative golfer. Like that was a guy that hit to the right parts of greens, and then when it was time to attack, he attacked. He wasn't by nature, a super aggressive player. He was just incredibly talented and put himself in a lot of positions to, to succeed, but he played to the fats of greens. And we now have more data to sort of determine like, where is that? It's not just the middle of the green. Sometimes it's the aiming point. You know, where is that aiming point? We've, we've, we've finally tuned what that looks like for guys now to understand how to play the game of golf. Does it make it more robotic for some? Yeah, absolutely. When we're playing now, thanks to tiger for multi millions of dollars, (laughs) <laughs> then finally tuning that and getting a half a shot better, not even half a shot better, a tenth of a shot better or a quarter of a shot better to these guys is the difference between being on the tour or not being on the tour or making an extra million dollars one year to another. Why Why is it, do you think, Will, that using analytics in that way doesn't seem to be in conflict with the ethic of golf or the culture of golf that they consider it you know, an edge and an important tool? It's not like either or in a way that it seems to be in a lot of other sports. Why yeah, is yeah. it? I've thought about that with golf before. And I'm curious your thoughts. Like, why is it? It's like these guys, these tough guys, these badasses are like, yeah, roll with numbers. Of course, it's going to make me a better golfer sure. in a way that other athletes don't do that. Well, and we've litigated some things out of the sport. I mean, we've litigated the greens books out of the sport. So we don't have an actual roadmap now in front of these guys to show you exactly the contours. So we've tried to put that back into the eyes and honestly, it's, I wrote this in the book too. It's the feet now. These guys are using an aim point system almost exclusively now that was developed with this idea of measuring the grade of slope and then using a structure with your fingers out in front of you to sort of see what percentage of slope you need to then putt to. So we've, we've turned putting in some cases, not from an art form, but into a scientific sort of process. But we've tried to eliminate some of those tools, especially on the PGA Tour, so that guys aren't you know, jumping to the head of the class, they still have to use some of their own natural God-given ability to see, feel, and see some of that. Um, we've seen it in terms of the, the club head speed and what the USGA and the RNA are trying to do to sort of cap some of the technological advancements in technology to do that. So I think we have some of those. But to answer the core of your question, in terms of analytics and data dictating how guys look strategically, I think it's just a question of, again, it goes back to anecdotal evidence. 
were good golfers doing this without realizing it was the right call every time? Yeah, probably. And now you can dial it all the way down to every hole. All 18 holes within the course of a round can be mapped out. That strategy can be there. Now you still have to hit the shot. It's still a human pulling it back. There's still a brain that's making those decisions and can certainly mess up that sort of process. But I don't think you can... I think when it just validates some of the stuff that was already passed down anecdotally, then it, it's okay. And if you guys want to do 18 segments on why I think banning the shift in baseball is the stupidest thing in the history of sport, then we can do that. Because again, I think advancing our intelligence is okay as long as we aren't litigating against just sort of the natural intelligence gains that w are happening. Like, so I don't think we've made the golfer easier by validating their strategy. If that mm -hmm. makes, if that makes sense. Whereas in okay. baseball, we're making it easier for a hitter who should be adapting to the technology around him. That's my soapbox that I'll get on when I talk about baseball in golf. It's right there in front of you. Now, can we make the equipment easier or harder to play again? Yeah, we can roll back equipment and make the sport harder to play, but I don't think we should be in the business of litigating against intellectual advancement, which is, I think, what we've learned here with the data and the course management. Let, okay. let, me ask, let me ask a question about golf um, and start with a statement about baseball. The concern about baseball is the game under, I mean, everyone's playing it optimally, and I don't think the, the, right. the, the, the baseball, the hitters are going to are going to change the, the strategy because of the shift, but the game has gotten more boring, and there's, mm -hmm. there's definitely a, a sense by MLB that the game is just still, still, still entertainment, fundamentally, and it's yes. got to be interesting to the, and so that there's, so let me ask you then, turning to golf, which is your specialty, is golf going to get boring? If Is that a concern if it becomes too I don't know what the right if pro, I don't know what the right answer is. What's the equivalent here? Yeah. Um, if if some of this these techniques be, uh, change the game in, in kind of key ways, I think the challenge for golf is that no two golfers view the 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 sport, the strategy of the sport, the same way. So I don't care about scoring records personally. If someone wants to shoot thirty two under par in a PGA Tour event, cool. Like let's more birdies for me to call. My job gets a lot easier when I'm calling birdies instead of guys scrambling to make bogeys. But there's maybe a fan listening who wants to hear or see his favorite PGA tour player struggle the way that he struggles when he's out playing his normal sort of muni course. And so there's this sort of the sanctimony of the sport that 150 years ago, par was a really good score. And now outside of a couple of tournaments a year, if you shoot par, you might miss the cut you know, through the first 36 holes. So to answer your question, I don't really know because I think you have, you know, you've got live golf and a whole bunch of other places trying to make the sport faster, bigger, bolder. Like I, I can't see equipment rolling back there. I think they want more birdies. I think they want more entertainment. You, the, the top golf world wants to see great sort of shots that are hit, but there's another segment of the golf population that wants golf to be hard. They want it to be torturous on these guys. And I don't, there's no way to make a sport that caters to both. I mean, there's completely two different directions that were right. going off in there. And, and that's what I think makes it really hard is I don't think golf is at an existential crisis, like say baseball was in terms of losing eyeballs and trying to change everything. And because each week on the PGA tour, it's a different ballpark. It's a different winning score. It's a different type of grass. It's sometimes a totally different game that's being played. And so it can look different from one week. The masters is a totally different golf experience in the U S open. The U.S. Open par is a really good score. Some years at the Masters, 15, 16 under wins. Those guys torch the back nine, and we like it. We like watching those back nine charges. And so I don't know if there's a, a perfect – I don't think there's a perfect way that people consume golf. 
I'm going to make one observation, just leave it for future and then trying to get Eric in here. But an example might be the homogenization of the swing. And I, I use it as kind of a straw man for this argument that analytics is is ruining the world because analytics isn't leading to the homogenization, homogenization of the swing. It's leading to the optimization. It's just optimization. It's yes. just market market forces and optimization. So I, I, it, it, that's a big conversation for another day. But well, it is I do, the kind I do of want thing. to say something about that, though. And I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. And I lead with the book about this is I honestly believe that data and science has reversed that trend in golf. I believe that golf was in a pathway where one swing was viewed to be the 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 okay. best, the most optimized. And now that we have data and launch monitors at our fingertips. You know, Matthew Wolf almost won a U.S. Open against Bryson DeChambeau, swinging with his club way up here and a and a foot target. Scotty Scheffler became number one player in the world, dancing like a ballerina out there. If you watch his footwork and swinging <laughs> out of his shoes, there's a kid, an All American, I just spent a, a couple of days with in Scottsdale, who plays at the University of Oklahoma, named Patrick Welch, who since at the age of three he swings cross handed. He's a right handed yeah. golfer with his left yeah. hand below his right hand, and because of launch monitors and younger instructors who are who are invested in these numbers and saying like, look, as long as the ball is dancing off the club face, the way that it needs to, then, and this gets you to where you're going to go. Like Jim Furyk's got a better chance of surviving instructor after instructor after instructor today than he did to get through to become who Jim Furyk became. I actually think that we have the potential to have more artistry in golf. Will it happen? I don't know, but we have a new generation now that are taught as long as the numbers validate the work that you're putting into it now the end justifies the means whereas before we were teaching a means to an end in the golf swing fascinating fascinating yeah i was actually my my question for will was just going to be exactly that which is as someone that's a massive golf fan um to me the thing that would be a shame and this builds on adi's point too is that if the heterogeneity in golf were to go away that would be very disappointing to me if every golfer has to be the size of bryson dechambeau if there's no Jeff Slumans running around that can win mm-hmm. tournaments, like I want, I'm not saying every tournament has to be equally opportunistic to every player, but I think we should have different swings. Some guys might hit 280, 290 off the tee. Other guys hit 320, 330. I would hate it if it got to, it's only the guys hit the, you know, it's the Rory McIlroy 330, 350 off the tee. Those are the only guys that can win. That would be my biggest fear. And it sounds in your opinion, and you talk about this, I guess, in the book, that that's not going to happen. If anything, it might be the opposite. No, but it, the Jeff Slumans of the world better get in the gym. You know, there, there, are, there are ways that we have evolved as a sport to where, you know, the guys who are shorter are still going to have to try and figure out ways to maximize their potential for distance. Now, a lot of this does fall at the feet of the governing bodies and even the PGA Tour. And I just got done covering a lot of golf this fall where we play a lot of courses on the PGA Tour in the fall, Mayakoba, Bermuda, to an extent last week it's Sea Island in Georgia, where length doesn't give you as big of an advantage as it does in other ballparks. Accuracy truly matters, whether it's where dog legs have to happen to be, the way the green complexes are. Heavy so, rough. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with the setup in some of those weeks year in, year out. So could we end up setting up golf courses in a way where every single week you have those bombers who have a significant advantage over the rest of the field? Absolutely. But I still think we have the potential for it. I just don't, we just don't have the data from 50 years ago to quantify how much longer Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas were to the average guy 
on, on their respective tours. Mm-hmm. I would wager a guess that if we had lasers back then and we put their strokes gain numbers up against everybody, we realized, oh, look, they're both above average in length. They're both really, really, really good iron players. They're somewhat streaky putters. And that's why they're the best golfers that ever lived. Like, I, I think there's actually a formula that we only have been able to put to paper over the last 20 years because we've only had data like this for since 2004. So, Will, we're going to have to wipe, wind, wind down, but your whole book is on data, of course. If you, if you had to say the, the one thing you want people to go to this book for or what do you want them to take away from this book, what would it be? Yeah, we cover everything in the book. So, I mean, it's from contact to grass. There's an entire chapter on agronomy and the science of turf that's in this book. So what I want it to be is it can be a reference. Would I love you to read the narrative from chapter one through 10? Absolutely. But if you want to stop after three chapters with fitness and then pick it back up a month later, you totally can. So what I want this to be is somewhat evergreen and a 100 level sort of view of all of these scientific principles. And yes, I discuss a lot about how the last quarter century has had this huge scientific revolution in the game of golf. Tiger had a lot to do with that just in timing and and also in the impact in terms of the money he brought into the sport. What I really want it to be is like, if you watch golf, it'll help you understand what you're seeing from the guys playing on the PGA Tour. If you play golf, there might be a couple of things where you're like, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. There's a great chapter de- devoted to psychology, which I find to be the most fascinating about how to balance your brain, like the brain mm-hmm. science of hitting mm-hmm. the perfect golf shot. So I just hope it can be a resource and a reference to, for people who to just inform their enjoyment of golf, whether they're watching the professionals or playing it recreationally. Mm-hmm. I feel like it is the view from the front row, like an informed, wise, data-loving front row viewer saying, Hey, this is what's happening. This is what y'all need to know. These are some of the details that you may not be picking up on that. I get the privilege of observing quite closely. And in that way, it's a real service to those of us who love golf. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for making the time, man. Really appreciate it. I wish you the best with the book and we wish you the best with the work you're doing there with the PGA tour and Sirius XM. We hope to talk with you more down the road. Thanks guys. That's a great chat. Absolutely. Will Haskett, author of a new book on golf. It's called the science of golf, the math, technology and data. He hosts a show on Sirius XM 92. He is the broadcaster for their coverage of the PGA tour. Gentlemen, quick wrap up here. What'd you think about the conversation with Will? Well, I like it that the fact that, uh, you know, the statistics don't know what your swing looks like, as long as you meet the launch angle that you need and everything else and the speed sounds like that's the future of golf. Yeah, I'm I'm really impressed, but I do think it's going to homogenize the game because they're going to, like the baseball pitchers throwing faster and faster. The golfers are going to get all collectively much better and and tighter. Well, because there'll be one or two ways, Adi, to get to that launch angle and to that speed better than others. That's for sure. Okay, gentlemen. Um, interesting little discussion on golf. It's kind of the quiet season. We'll have more of it after the first of the year, but that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter, as our regular listeners know, has have become our, our most reliable interview quarter during the time of COVID. And again, this week, we've got an interview in Q4. Delighted to have David Spiegelhalter joining us this quarter. First time guest. On Wharton Moneyball, David is the chair of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication. That center is based in the Department of Pure Mathematics and Mathematical Statistics in Cambridge. David and his center are dedicated to improving the way quantitative evidence is used in society. 
which I think overlaps quite well with the mission here on Wharton Moneyball. So we are delighted to welcome David on the show. Good after good evening to you, David, coming to us from the UK. Thank you for joining us today. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, we're delighted to talk with someone who's doing the work that you're doing, and we're especially interested here. You know, we're not we're not done with COVID. We may not be done with COVID for some time, but we're through the kind of panicked phase of it. And after a couple of years working on the front lines, it's interesting to reflect on what we've learned, especially from someone who was working in the way that you were. How would you characterize what you did over the last two and a half years on the COVID front? And how would you characterize what you think you learned from, from that work? Oh, yeah, that's that's tricky. I guess what I did, I kind of became a bit of a public explainer of the data. Um, so uh, I did a lot of media work on uh, TV and radio, podcasts and so on, just trying to explain some of the complex terms being used and uh, all the statistical ideas that came up in COVID. And and there are just so many. We ended up writing a book, COVID by Numbers, about 25 chapters, every one on a different aspect of COVID and all completely statistical. It's quite extraordinary. It challenged every bit of understanding I had, every issue about you know, really quite deep ideas about uncertainty and so, and, and evidence. And it, so it, it is, for me, it's been an absolute exemplar of the value, but the difficulty of using statistics in, mm-hmm. in important, you know, societal issues. Well, let's talk about it in the case of COVID, because we all had that experience. And kudos to you for writing down what you learned through the process. I suspect we grappled with many of the same struggles, um, but we didn't write a book about it. I'm curious to hear. Eric's trying to jump in here. But one second, Eric. Let's, let's just hear a little bit of if your experience was like ours, I'm guessing that you didn't realize all the things that you were going to have to explain. It reminds me a little bit of the, of, I remember once going to a baseball game with some Russians and I had, I realized I had to explain the game to them and Oh my God. I mean, baseball is utterly unexplainable. You, you don't realize how arcane and absurd and detailed the rules are. And it's, I think we all ran into some of that as we started trying to explain that. I, I, exactly. I mean, I started off thinking, oh, this is just, you know, this is a risk issue, mortality rates and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, I can do all that. And then um, it just got more and more complicated. We got into diagnostic testing, spread, vaccines, effectiveness, and so on, and the, the effectiveness of the, all the non-pharmaceutical interventions and so on. And so we ended up with my colleague, Anthony Masters, we were invited to do a weekly column in The Observer, one of the, you know, the, one of the main Sunday newspapers in London, in in the uk and every sunday we wrote a column we're only like 350 words and it's quite a challenge but we wrote 50 one you know every week last year we had we had a sunday column and and there wasn't i don't i don't think we had to overlap you know every tuesday we'd think of a topic and there's always something new to try to explain and uh, so it was it was quite extraordinary how you could get just topic after topic idea after idea challenge after challenge yeah. Well, I won't hold you to this as if there's an answer, but off the top of your head, what do you what's one thing that you think you learned from that process? Oh, I think it's just the importance of knowing the provenance of the what does the data actually mean? I mean, the stuff we were doing was not complex analysis, wasn't hugely sophisticated modeling or anything like that. We weren't involved in that. A lot of it was just, you know, what is a COVID debt? 
you know what what's a positive test what what can you learn from that well you know it depends so much on why you are hearing this observation you know the mm-hmm. the, the 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 knowledge of 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 how this data being collected and what it actually you know what what can you get out of it um, is it it's, it's humbling how modest that is right? oh, it i is. mean it, it, it is it reminds me your, yeah. Our buddy Adi here, he reminds me of multiple conversations with Adi where we'd come in with a study. You know, we'd read some study in the newspaper, or we'd read some academic paper, and Adi would say, well, first of all, the data are crap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'm not going to bother to look at the fancy stuff. And I got, you know, all sorts of maths, you know, qualifications coming out my ears, and I didn't use any of them, really. I used Bayes' theorem as the most complicated thing I actually had to deal with, I think. Right. So I want to I piggyback off of just what McKay just said, and actually – I think I want to ask you about what I think is we as statistics communities and the scientific community's probably biggest failure in this is that we we didn't emphasize how essential the randomized controlled experiment is to actually understand causality. And I'll just back up for a minute. There was only only the short, rather uncom- incomplete trial that facts that Pfizer and Moderna did about the vaccine. But we did. We there were so so few large scale clinical trials we did a what do we call it operation warp speed um for um the vaccine itself but we should have been doing operation warp speed for the for everything we wanted to learn what the uk i mean we got loads of things wrong but we got a couple of things right and the first thing was the recovery trials which was you know, a platform trial that was set up very rapidly. I mean, you, the UK should be able to do the best trials because we got the National Health Service. We got everything. We got people volunteer for trials all the time. You could just you couldn't stop them joining COVID drugs. And so they set up this platform and so they could test everything. And people were being enrolled in three trials at once and they were stopping them and starting them. So um, that's how uh, it approved you know, hydroxychloroquine, well, it wasn't, it wasn't useful. And um, that's how approved dexamethasone worked and so on. So all these different things were being tested all the time. So there were, you know, I think we did some very rapid, good randomized trials of treatment. But the thing I find really irritating is there were so few randomized trials of policy. Uh, because you know this country and elsewhere is spending billions on testing and tracing mm. and uh, and mm. closing schools and taking kids out because one person had got got tested positive in a class and endless disruption and um, without actually evaluating the effectiveness of these policies and mm. uh, just a little bit of money could have been spent on that but you know they finally started in the UK randomizing schools to different policies but it, the, the effort to get wow gave them a small study to do that they should have been doing that right from the start or randomizing areas for different lo- for different lockdown policies i, 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 I want to wonder with you a little bit about why that never happened because we as statisticians know how important that is but i'm wondering whether or not and this is my speculation that the observational study is so ingrained in so much of science and social science that that to stand up and say that you just can't make inferences observationally that are reliable is to, in some sense, question so many fields that re- that use it so extensively. They should know. Right. They should know by now that you can't just look at what's going on. And say <laughs> oh how man! If masks are, I mean, no, no, I don't think I don't think these other fields they haven't got an excuse. And within, you know, there's a lot of people within social science who who do agree that you should be randomizing. A lot of people in other areas you should be randomizing. So I think the real problem is, the, is with the policymakers that they, because they're so 
obsessed, I think, with a sort of conviction that this is the right thing to do and that's what we're doing it. If you do a randomized trial of an intervention, you have to admit you don't know. You have to that's admit, right. well, mm-hmm. we're going to try it out. We don't know whether this is the best thing to do. And that sort of humility, that that acknowledgement that your knowledge is is limited, that any um, recommendation you might, might make is provisional, politicians find that unbelievably difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And that, that's it, something it, I found difficult right from the start and still find difficult. Well, to be simple, I 100% agree with what both of you guys are saying, but to be sympathetic, their constituents don't really buy that. And and, and they're, they're beholden to those guys. And no, so no, 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 it's a real no. leader. There are some points where, which require leadership and, and leadership requires Agreed. you to say, to, to, to have honest and I think leadership with some humility, say, we don't know. Yeah. So therefore, we are going to carry out an experiment in order to find out what is best. So I, 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 I agree that's optimal. <laughs> and I agree in some cases it's possible. And I agree the best leaders can pull it off. It is difficult. And it's not, I mean, I, I'm speaking not only as like public officials, but there are now leaders in companies who make decisions about whether to run experiments within companies. And they, they face some of the same some, we're, 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 we're being experimented on every time we we open our browser. Someone's doing an A/B study on on different. Well, marketing marketing they have no qualms doing this, but no, with exactly. human resources, we don't have to give consent for that. But we know that patients are willing to join randomized trials. Will give consent for a really radical difference. I mean, they were randomized trials of mastectomy, and if if people could do that, if if in a way the medical profession has has got the courage and the humility. To, to carry out those sorts of studies, then I, I really find it extraordinary that the um, that policymakers can't can't do the same. I well, mean, I love the word surprised because you know you know this is the uh, politicians do find it difficult. They have to <laughs> operate with conv- conviction, and this is the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah, and then they can't change their minds because they're accused that's, of doing a U-turn. That's right. And it's a competitive marketplace, essentially. If one person is humble, yeah. their rival is going to come out with, you know, conviction and, and they're going to criticize them. for their- our, our, our research shows that um, public people, when we do randomized trials of different ways of communicating to ordinary members of the public and, and you know, A-B testing of different formats. And we find that if you do admit uncertainty, you do admit you're not sure, there's no reduction in trust in the source, if you're honest. Really? Really? Yeah, but okay. the thing is, is that so David... See, one of the things that make difficult, some of the most important decisions really deeply affected people's lives in, in transformative ways and to backtrack from those decisions and say, you know what, or start by saying you were uncertain and to backtrack. I'll, stay, I'll th- say one thing, that the vaccine mandates, um, which seem to have been unnecessary when you look back at it, um, because they didn't do that. what they, I mean, they didn't keep, stop spread, and that was the, that was the reason for forcing people to take it. Mm-hmm. I went. I didn't go personally, but my, one of my colleagues in neuro, neurology was at the National Science Foundation uh, meetings um, down in Washington D.C. National Academy of Science. Sorry, and they are still requiring vaccines to enter the building. Oh, I, th- this this sort of stuff. I mean, UK we we didn't have vaccine mandates. Like, I, yeah. I originally I changed my mind. I was really Stalinist about I, everyone had to be vaccinated right back at the beginning when they first came out. But I realised I was wrong. Actually, you know, the, the vaccine mandates were, were deeply um, divisive. And, and you said once you signed up for them, you can never go back. You forced mm-hmm. people to do this. You can't admit you're wrong. You know, masking, you know, vaccinating kids, waste of time, masking toddlers, waste of time. So, you know, to do all that stuff, 
once you've decided that you're going to recommend that, you have to stick with it. And this is something, again, that I've I've learned from some, there's a guy called John Krebs who used to run the Food Standards Agency in the UK. And when he was in charge of it, he was hit by disaster after disaster, foot and mouth disease, scrapey, everything went wrong, one after the other. And he developed a, a, a sort of strategy for dealing with that, that um, I, I, you know, and he wrote about it. And he said, you've got five points. You First, when you're dealing with this sort of crisis, you, you, you say what you know, to the public yeah you this we know this and then you say immediately say what well, you don't know you don't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you say what you're doing to learn more and then you say what in the meantime as we're learning as we're finding out more what we are reckon what you might want to do to be on the safe side mm-hmm. what we're actually recommending people do but then the final thing is to absolutely emphasize the provisionality of what you're saying things mm-hmm. will change as we mm-hmm. learn more we're doing mm-hmm. this now on that to be precautionary because we don't know enough. Therefore, we are recommending, you know, doing various things. But this is not the last word. This is provisional. We will come back and give change our advice. Mm-hmm. And, David, that's a wonderful five point plan. That sounds yeah, fantastic. but everyone forgets the last one always. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in the U.S., they certainly forgot more points along the way, not just yeah. the last one. Yeah, exactly. They only started with the first one. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. My impression is that the CDC in the U.S. has a very well understood philosophy of communication and a similar list, not as pithy as your five, but like a yeah. similar list. And it just all got chucked out. Yeah, along the way yeah. like they just Everybody, they know better and it just didn't yeah, happen exactly everyone's got all these fine principles about trust trustworthy and transparency and, and it all seemed to go out the window and it became very authoritarian and mm-hmm. unbelievably divisive of what went mm-hmm. on it, it was better in the uk but not not as good as, not as good as it should have been mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right we're talking to david spiegelhalter david is the chair of the winton center for risk and evidence communication at cambridge David, I'm curious about the more general enterprise about get, getting society to use quantitative evidence more. This is, I mean, that is a mission that we are behind and we're pushing in lots of ways, um, some places more successfully than others. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what are you working on now? Um, and, I'm, and I'm curious about certain aspects of it. Like, what, what do you know? What have you learned about communicating uncertainty? We've been talking right. about it in a way, but it's a very general challenge. In some I, I, I think this is the absolute crucial thing. I know this is my next book is going to be, you know, just on this stuff. You know, this is what I got fascinated by. Um, I've been working on uh, in the UK, the infected blood inquiry. This is the issue in the 70s and 80s where people got infected blood, people with hemophilia and through blood transfusions. And, you know, 1,200 people got, HIV. Um, oh my! Okay. And most women have died. Um, we reckon twenty six thousand people got hepatitis C in the UK just from blood transfusions. Okay, um, because of people given giving contaminated blood, infected blood. So there's an, but trying to estimate those numbers is full of uncertainty. Full of uncertainty. So we had to communicating uncertainty was our number one thing that we had to face up to in giving okay. evidence to this public inquiry. So I, I, it's a very, it's a very challenging issue because. As a statistician, or as statisticians, we're used to trying to really quantify our uncertainty. We've got, you know, methods that produce in nice little intervals, whether they're confidence intervals from a classical perspective or credible intervals from a Bayesian perspective. So we produce intervals. We think we can do, we can do this. Right. We right. can somehow put our uncertainty into numbers. And it's great if you can do that, but, you know, and I've spent my career both doing it and teaching people this stuff. But I've become very skeptical about it because those those quantified uncertainties, because they're essentially 
dependent upon the assumptions within the model, and you sure. know are true. So the whole point, the one thing you know is that this interval isn't right because you know your assumptions are untrue. So it's an issue of how wrong is it, but it's not right. And so <laughs> and, and we, for example, we had a lovely thing in the UK, which they published that we had eight independent research groups estimating this magic R number. You know, on, a, on average, how many, per, how many people would you expect someone who's infected to to pass it on to? And that depends on, on you know, the, the restrictions in place and so on. You want to get the R below one, and then the, then the um, epidemic stops spreading. So, and there were eight different groups estimating this R number every couple of weeks or something, essentially estimating the same thing from roughly the same data. And they all got different answers. And their intervals, mm-hmm. they all calculated their intervals, and they didn't even overlap. Oh, my God. So, so hang on. They must, <laughs> they can't all be right. Because each of those intervals was assu- was based on assuming their model was correct. And they all used different yeah. models. Yeah. So they all then had to get together in a committee and produce one interval. Yeah. And sort of pooled all this stuff and spread it out a bit. And they came up with some conclusion that was published. But bless them, it's very good, very <laughs> honest and open. They showed the individual intervals, which didn't even overlap. And that, I think, is a real, real, real question. Quick. Can I just note that, that is, there's, a, there's a paper here in the States from a few years ago, and they call it micro certainty, macro uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The individual users or docs or locations are quite yeah. sure of their methods, even yeah, though yeah. they're yeah. prescribing different methods. And yeah. it's essentially what you're seeing yeah, there. Exactly. And it's that, I mean, for that start, that shows enormously the value of having independent teams and not just having one group. And same thing's been found in climate change as well. Mm-hmm. So you, you just hope these people don't speak to each other. to speak to each other. The, That's the important with criticizing because it sounds like a weird thing to say, but David's actually being very sincere. The, there's more information in their reports or their forecasts if they're independent, and yeah. you maintain the independence by minimizing communication. Adi. So there's a couple of things that that results from this. First of all, you're 100 percent right. I feel like I'm I'm uh, I give that lecture to my students all the time, and and it never really gets that far. Uh, two quick observations. First of all, we made the same that we made that often on our radio show. We talked about how the forecasts of what's going to happen in the next month, and there'll be 20 of them, and they, their confidence intervals don't overlap. Yeah. But the ultimate result, unfortunately, is is so much uncertainty that you communicate no information. You're essentially saying we don't know what R is when, when you when you when you have that many independent teams and they all do things differently. And now what? Well I know I think I don't think that's fair. In this in this case, they were all different. They didn't overlap. But when you put them together, they came up with a reasonable number. Quite a wide interval, but it was informative. No, no, it was useful to put them together. And um and, and but the, I could, uh, we could talk about modeling forecasting. Now that's a situation where especially if you're asked to forecast somewhere in the future the most sensible thing to say is we don't know because the intervals, if we were really honest about our uncertainty about the structure of the model and in particular people's behavior, which is the biggest mm-hmm. input. And yet the thing we know least about, we'd produce forecasts were from, or, you know, ranged from, you know, trivial to disastrous. Mm-hmm. And that's what we say. Well, we just don't know. So maybe sometimes as being honest and, and, and presenting a huge interval, people will say, well, what's the good of that? Well, they're right. Because you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> so I think but, the first thing to me but, is that some in some situations as a model, you should say we cannot answer your question. You see, but, that, but that's actionable. This is one that people might say, well, then why bother? And we, But the thing is, you don't just throw up your hands in that circumstance. No, no. That might call for a very different course of action if you if you are certain that you're that uncertain. 
But the, the, the interesting thing I, I'm struggling with at the moment um, is what do you do when you, you produce some interval and yet you actually you know it's it's not that great. You know, the model's not that great. The data isn't that great. There's some biases and things like that. What do you do? And the climate community has been stuck with, with has been presented with this, of course, when you've got mm-hmm. fairly low confidence, actually, in your analysis. And there's two responses you can do. One is to actually get together and widen your interval using judgment. And which is what they do in, in some climate modeling for some areas. And that's really what the R people did. They got together and they cooked an interval up that they actually ended up believing in, and they could all sign up to. So what is you? So David, let me make sure, let me just make sure that you're, you're, I'm understanding this properly. You're saying, look, you've got an interval, but you kind of don't trust the process. And so you know what's wrong. This goes back to the first thing you said about uncertainty. It's like we draw the intervals, but we know that they depend on parameters that we're not sure of. So what you're saying is you kind of manually you stretch broaden. it out. You might move it a bit if you think there's some systematic biases and stretch it out. Yep. That's yep. quite a respectable thing to do. You know, I really think this is a, a very appropriate thing. It takes effort and time, and you've got to sign up and be honest about the fact that this is based on judgment. And mm-hmm. I think this right. is a really valuable exercise. But the other thing to do, which is a bit lazier, but which we've done, is to uh, which people do, in the, is just present the calculated interval and then present with it uh, a measure of your essentially your confidence that mm-hmm. you, you've done a decent analysis, your confidence that the the data available can actually confidence. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, your confidence comes, but so you give it and and you use that on a low, low to moderate, moderate, moderate. So it's a qualitative judgment, expert judgment on your confidence in the whole analytic process. So, mm-hmm. it, and and I know some people think this is just a cop out, but it's actually a very practical thing to do. And we've been doing this; I find it quite useful. But I kind of feel now it is a bit of a cop out. What you really should be doing is having the courage to widen the interval and actually give mm-hmm. an interval. That mm-hmm. is based on judgment, but that it's it's well, tricky, it's tricky and it's difficult. The, the thing is, is that we, you know, in the last two years, where statistics was front and center for so many lives, obviously not just ours, but the world, the major educating agencies like the CDC, like like the World Health Organizations, like the individual states that was making recommendations, there was just no talk of uncertainty at all. Mm-hmm. And, and and sometimes, I mean, one of the things that one of the favorite things that we did in our show was to just point things that were point out things that were being said and realize that they made no sense. They were impossible. At one point, the CDC had forecasted and forecast had, was was estimating that over ninety nine point nine percent of of Americans over sixty five had been vaccinated until they until the next went, uh, number went over one hundred and they realized I think their method's wrong and then they retracted the figure off their website. Um, but it didn't stop them from soon to talk about how the effect. of uh, the 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 efficacy of the vaccine uh, preventing serious de- a disease was over ninety nine percent when most of the other world bodies were putting numbers out around ninety yeah, percent and and with with pretty wide uncertainty bounds because obviously this is observational and because we're dealing with observational data you have this sort of model problem you have un unobserved confounders which means that you can use your normal theory all you like to produce a confidence interval in the classical sense but you still have lack of confidence in the method. And so we, everything just was, was crazy. And I think in some level, um, we, uh, what can we do to, to restore faith? And in the United States, it's broken. I can tell you that. I, I, I think it's going to get back to all the time, but people just need to, the, the courage to have the humility to admit the uncertainty in what they're doing. And uh, certainly, you know, yeah, many groups of people find this incredibly difficult. They say, oh, if we if we admit we don't know, nobody will take any notice of us and so on, which, you know, 
our experience is that is not true. I'm my real bugbear. <laughs> the thing I don't is, is communications departments in government in government agencies. The, the comms people are obsessed with. It's got to be simple. It's got to, you've got to say the same thing again and again and again. Um, and we've got to be confident. And we've got to tell people what to do. And they just paint themselves into a corner by that that they can't mm-hmm. get out of it. So we, for example, worked with directly with the. Um, um, agencies here on the benefits and harms of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has never been approved in the US. In the UK, um, it was being given to lots of people, and they found out that, uh, particularly in younger people, people were getting really serious blood clots. And that was middle of last year. Um, and so we got the data on that. And uh, we produced some analyses showing the benefits and harms of the of the vaccine um, for different age groups and showing that for people my age in their 60s, the benefits clearly hugely out weighed any potential harms it was you know no brainer god no stick it in me you know queue up and stick it in me but as you got younger the benefits dropped very rapidly because the benefits mm-hmm. of vaccination drop incredibly rapidly as you get younger but the harms went up mm-hmm. and so by the time you're less than 30 the harms outweighed the benefits mm-hmm. and so and uh so that that's what the amazing we were doing this analysis for the guy um the deputy chief medical officer who was Due to give the public presentation of this on the Wednesday afternoon, we spoke to him on to the Wednesday morning and he used our data and our graphics directly. And I'm confident that if it had had to go through their department comms group, they mm-hmm. never would have used it. I don't think mm-hmm. they would have used it because they said, mm-hmm. oh, this is too complicated. Uh, mm-hmm. This is too, you know, we're talking about the harms of vaccine. We can't talk about the harms of vaccine you know, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they did do it and it was complicated. And he said, oh, therefore, we're not going to um, people under 30 won't get the vaccine anymore. And everyone said, fine, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Didn't accuse him of a U-turn. He explained it. They treated the audience with respect as intelligent people, talked them through it. Everything's got benefits. Everything's got harms. We're just trying to weigh them up. And, and, and that was fine. And he got away. With it. Not, I wouldn't say he we got need, away with it. He just, everyone accepted it. Well, we need more examples like that. And we, in, in order to fight the battle with the folks who don't want to put out that kind of information, we need to be able to point to examples like that where the information was presented and it yep. went over well. We don't have enough positive examples. Adi's trying to jump in. And we're going to have well, to wrap I, up here shortly, guys. I just want, I want to ask a question before I make a comment. Many schools, colleges in the United States are still requiring boosters and extra boosters. Uh, many are not like Penn is not for, for young people for, for their students for young people and and you're, you you got to shake your head and go how could they still be doing this and that's because United States agencies have not made that statement and they have not and and uh, but I want to ask a, a question related to this um, having to do with um, uh, heart problems for young people from the Pfizer and the, the Pfizer Moderna. yeah that's the that's the uh, right yeah. it's uh is is I don't think it's okay Adi it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Get your question out. Let's go. Yeah, I know. We'll, we'll, I guess we'll edit it out. Um, no, I could bring my dog in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we don't usually have a dog, but today he's here with us. Um, my, my question is, uh, will the UK, which has much better data, National Health Service, mm-hmm. have the ability to actually answer that question? And because I think the United States will be hopelessly lost to do it properly. Yeah, I mean, we're not giving boosters to young, younger, young people. Nobody under 50 is getting a booster. Really, just flat out in the UK, that's not it's happening. Just, just, just not bothering. Because the point is that nearly everyone's had COVID. Um, co- having COVID gives better protection than the vaccine. And the booster actually doesn't add 
that much to your protection and it and it and it drops off i mean i've had one fine yeah no style i'll have it but i've had covid as well and it's much better than i had covid got over it than i had the booster so now everyone nearly everyone's in the uk has had it then actually the need for these um for the vaccine has dropped enormously mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. we the one thing we, we our vaccine rollout was based on uh i i'm really proud of it because they were so ruthless this is by age that's it you know, right, right. Age. I remember age is the I mean, this is the one thing I've been I, I have to say, I'm pleased. From March 2020, I was going on the radio banging on about age. The age is exponential <laughs> increase with age is it's dominated. This is the one thing we did a know. problem for young people. Yeah, yeah, great. All right. Listen, David, it's a pleasure. Thank you for making time, especially in your evening over there in the UK. We um appreciate your visit. And, and I'm excited about this book you're writing about uncertainty. So we're going to keep an eye out for that. We'd love to hear from you once you have the book out. Communicating uncertainty, the challenge of uncertainty is something we are all battling weekly. All right. That was David Spiegelhalter, chair of the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication. He is based in the math department, not only math department, the pure math department <laughs> at Cambridge. A pleasure to talk with Spiegelhalter. We are ne- wrapping up now two hours, another two hours, guys, of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, Audie Weiner, who was here with me in the last quarter, for Eric Bradlow and Sean- Shane Jensen, our other two collaborators here for the rest of the show. For Maddie Datz, the boss man, and Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.